Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, or made me free, from the law of sin and death. This morning, as we talked about the law of sin and death, We noted that Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, as you recall, points us back to Romans chapter 7, verse 5 and verse 6. And in Romans 7, verse 5, that thought picks up in Romans 7, verse 13 to 25. It elaborates on verse number 5. Romans 7, verse 13 to 25, describe for us the state of a person who is lost in sin without any recourse, who is confronted with the reality of sin without any ability to do anything about it. But then, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul begins to pick up and elaborate on Romans 7, verse 6. Romans 7, 5 deals with sin and deals with death, and he describes the situation of sin and death. In verse 24, when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But Romans 8 verse 1 begins to pick up on verse 6, where Paul talks about the fact in Romans 7, 6, that we have been delivered, having died to what we were held by, so that we should uh, serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Sin and death is described at the end of chapter 7, but life is described at the beginning and through on the remainder of Romans chapter 8. A state of no condemnation to those who live their lives in accordance with what uh, the Spirit teaches. A spirit or a reality of no condemnation for those who have been made free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This book teaches us, the book of Romans, that sin is everybody's problem. It teaches us that sin is serious, that sin is worthy of God's wrath, that sin produces death, and that the the only relationship that a Christian should have with sin is that he must die to it. He must die to sin. Those are the things that we noted this morning. But now we want to pick up on the second part of the thought that is issued in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. We've talked about the law of sin and death, but now we want to talk about what God has done in order to set us free from the law of sin and death and what this book, uh, the book of Romans, says about how God has gone about doing that. And what we want to do is we want to focus on a number of words or terms. And these terms or these words are significant throughout the chapters and the verses of the book of Romans, particularly throughout about the first six or seven chapters uh, uh, to, to be specific. So let's look at these words together. And as we think about these words, these terms, and what they mean, they will help paint a clearer picture for us of what God has done in order to separate us or deliver us from the law of sin and death. And again, our aim for today is to help us to grow in two areas. Number one, we want to grow in our hatred for sin. But number two, we want to grow in our appreciation for salvation. 
Turn with me to the first chapter again, and we want to begin tonight by looking at this word, and the word is justification. Justification. This word is found a couple of times in this book, but the principle of this, uh, this, uh, the principle of this word is found all throughout the book. In fact, it's one of the primary themes. It's found 17 times in the book of Romans, and the first time we find it is in chapter 1, verse number 17, where Paul says, for in it, that is, in the gospel, <clears throat> the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. When the Bible uses the word just or justification in the book of Romans, it's actually using a word that has a legal connotation. To be just or to be justified, it's a legal term, and it means to be acquitted by God from all charges. When the Bible talks about being justified in Romans, it's talking about being exempted from the penalty that is deserved by sin. Literally, the idea is that the penalty has been set aside in a way that is consistent with the righteous judge's system of justice. Now turn to chapter 3, and we're going to spend some time in chapter 3, the last 10 verses of chapter 3. And as you're doing that, I want you to imagine in your mind a court scene. And in this court scene, we have God who is the just and who is the perfect judge. And then we have humanity. And humanity stands before the judge having been convicted because they are guilty of committing sin having been convicted of trespassing and going against the law of God, recognizing that because God is a just and a fair judge, that one who commits a trespass and who violates the system or who violates uh, the law of God, that there must be a penalty that is paid. Now, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of the chapter, Paul is going to deal more with justice. And I want you to look at the question that he asks in verse 26. Look at the end of the verse. He talks about God being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So the question is this. How is God able to acquit? How is God able to acquit us from all charges, to exempt us from the penalty that is deserved for committing sin and for breaking his law while at the same time maintaining his justice or his fairness. That's the point of verse 26. He can be just and the justifier. He can be fair and he can make us right or acquit us from all charges. That's the question that needs to be considered. You see, we have to remember that the nature of God says that God is absolutely holy and he's absolutely good. And because of his absolute goodness and his absolute holiness, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7 and verse number 11. That he can't even look upon iniquity, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13. It is absolutely true that God must punish sin in order to be consistent with his holy nature. But justification means that God acquits us. Justification means that God declares us exempt from all charges so that we can stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification is all about. Standing before God just as if I'd never sinned. But how can God do it? 
That brings us to our second term, and that's found in verse 25 of Romans 3. And that term is propitiation. Let's read this together. I want you to start with me in verse, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse number 23, and let's read together through verse 26. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to key in with me uh, on the word propitiation. This word, believe it or not, was used by pagans in antiquity. They believed that their false gods were unpredictable, and they believed that those gods would become angry with them over the smallest thing. And so when disaster struck, whatever it might be, maybe a natural disaster or maybe some disease or some famine, they thought that it was a God who had become angry with them and so therefore was punishing his worshipers. And so the worshipers then would offer a sacrifice as a remedy to please the God. And this process was called propitiation. But what the Holy Spirit does by the pen of Paul in Romans chapter 3 is he takes this principle and he exalts it to a higher plane than paganism could have ever imagined because he applies this word to our God and to his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what he tells us in Romans 3 verse 25 is that Jesus Christ became our propitiation, which literally means he became our wrath appeaser. Now go back again to our court scene. God is our judge. He is a righteous judge and his righteous and his holy nature demands that sin must be punished and sin has been committed. And yet God's desire is for you and I to be acquitted from the punishment that is deserved from transgressing his law. So how can he acquit us? How can he release us, if you will, from the punishment that's deserved and still be a fair judge? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus steps in and Jesus appeases the wrath of God on our behalf. He took our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it this way, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Without Jesus being our propitiation, God ceases to be a fair judge. Imagine a situation in which you stand in a court of law and uh, there is a person who has committed a crime against you and against your family. Maybe they've stolen from you. Maybe they've even committed murder and they've murdered someone in your family. And the judge hears all of the evidence against them and the judge says, I'm not going to punish you because it's really not your fault. What would you think about that? Certainly, we would think that that judge is unjust. We would think that that judge is unfair because a crime has been committed and a penalty must be paid and no one is paying the penalty. Now, because Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, God continues to be fair. God continues to be just because a penalty has been paid. 
God's wrath is appeased on our behalf by Jesus Christ. And so because he took our place, we can be pronounced vindicated and just. We can be declared not guilty and we can be accounted as sinless before God. He is our substitution. Justification and propitiation, they go hand in hand. To be justified means to be acquitted, to be able to stand before God just as if we'd never sinned. But justification is not possible without propitiation. Being declared just is not possible without Jesus stepping in to absorb the penalty and to appease the wrath of God on our behalf and in our place. Now let's think about another word. Look at Romans chapter 5. And I want you to look with me at a word that is found in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 10. Paul says this, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. Our word is reconciled or reconciliation. And the word or the idea of reconciliation means literally to repair a broken relationship. Sometimes some define it as to make friends again, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that definition. With that definition either, to really appreciate uh, the uh, importance of reconciliation, we have to remember the reality of the wrath of God. Remember, in chapter one, verse seventeen, Paul describes the wrath of God as an ongoing, ever-present reality. And in passages like Psalm 5 and verse number 5, the Bible tells us that God hates all workers of iniquity. In Psalm 34 and verse number 16, the Bible tells us that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the wrath of God is just just as much a part of his character and a part of who he is as his holiness and as his love. One scholar has defined God's wrath in this way as God's judicial enmity toward those who are against him. Notice the word judicial. When we talk about the wrath of God, we're not talking about God throwing a divine temper tantrum, if you will. We're not talking about some sort of knee-jerk reaction. What we're talking about is that wrath which is completely perfect and judicial and right uh, in um, uh, in its origin. God is angry with the wicked every day, and the reason is because God is righteous, and wickedness is completely opposed to everything that he is and everything that he demands. Now back to reconciliation in Romans chapter 5. You'll notice that the apostle Paul mentions the wrath of God in Romans 5 verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. Why is that the case? Because if when we were enemies to God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled will be saved by his life. You see, the important point about reconciliation is that it is God who took the initiative. Sometimes maybe in thinking about things in the realm of apologetics or Christian evidence as we deal with the question of the problem of evil, And sometimes the uh, suggestion is given, well, if God is a righteous God and a good God, then how in the world could God have created a world where sin and evil and pain and suffering exist? How do we reconcile uh, pain and suffering and evil and so on with the existence of a good and a righteous and a loving and a holy God? 
And there are many answers to that question, many answers to that suggestion, but let me suggest that here's one, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not as if God hasn't done anything to deal with sin and deal with pain and deal with suffering and deal with evil. God has done something in order to deal with it, and that something is the cross of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is the idea of a broken relationship being restored, and a relationship between man and God is broken because of sin. And it's not as if God stood back and said, you committed sin, it's your fault, and so I'm not going to do anything to help you with it. No, the Bible tells us that from eternity, God's plan before ever even creating man was for Jesus to come into this world and die on the cross and shed his blood so that our sins can be forgiven and so that the relationship broken by sin can be restored. Reconciliation is something that we ought to think about because reconciliation implies that God took the initiative. God took the initiative to remove the enmity and to restore the relationship. When we think about the law of sin and death, it ought to do two things. Number one, it ought to increase our hatred of sin. And number two, it ought to increase our appreciation for salvation. So far, we have justification, the ability to be acquitted from all charges and stand before God just as if we'd never committed a single sin. But we also have propitiation, and that's what makes justification possible. God offers his son on the cross of Calvary as a wrath appeaser, as a substitutionary atonement, if you will, so that God's wrath has been appeased, the penalty for sin has been paid, and so therefore we can stand just before God and God can be just in making us that way. But then we have, then we have reconciliation. God's initiative in repairing a broken relationship And we ought to be thankful and we ought to thank God and praise God on a regular basis for these things. But there's more. That's not the end. I want you to go back to the third chapter of the book of Romans again. And I want you to look at verse number 24. We read it a moment ago, but I want to key in on it one more time. And I want you to notice with me a word that is used there. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Along with our word justification and propitiation and reconciliation is the word redemption. And it's one that should be familiar to us. Redemption has to do with a loosing or a setting free or a ransom. And it has to do with a buying back. Under the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, things like property and firstborn and even slaves could be redeemed or bought back. We read about it in passages like Exodus chapter 13 and Leviticus chapter 25 and a number of others. In the time of the New Testament, the New Testament world, if you will, this word or this idea of redemption could be used for the act of ransoming slaves or prisoners of war or even condemned criminals. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, the passage we read a moment ago, verse 10? For even if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, I guess we don't like to think of it in this way, especially in the United States of America in the 21st century, but the reality is that in committing sin, we become the enemies of God. We become convicted criminals. And again, that's the point of the need for justification We violate the law of God, and so we stand condemned. And God justifies us through the giving of his son. 
But the point of redemption is this. You can't redeem something. You can't buy something back that hasn't been lost or sold in the first place. So when Paul describes redemption in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 24, what he's talking about the fact is those who are lost in sin have become servants of sin and we have been redeemed or loosed or set free or bought back from the service of sin and the way that that is uh, and the way that that happened is through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ the death of Christ is a ransom payment that takes the place of the penalty for sins that is owed to God by all mankind by the way are you noticing how many of these contexts are concepts go together so so closely. They have uh, different parts and principles of them that are interrelated. Justification and propitiation and reconciliation and now redemption. And maybe you've heard this before, but when you think about redemption, there are three points that ought to come to mind. First point is something once possessed is lost. Romans 3 verse 23, we looked at it this morning, says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches us that when a person is born into this world, they are born into a, uh, a saved state, a perfect relationship with God. But when we sin, that relationship is done away with. It's, it's severed, and we become slaves to sin, John 8 and verse number 34. Hence, the need for reconciliation. And the second point is that a price must be paid. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You remember Hebrews 9 and verse number 12. And so Christ shed his blood, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 and following. And then the third point is that a power must be broken. It's the power of sin and death. Remember, that's what we're studying, Romans 7, verse, or excuse me, Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. We have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Well, what's the law of sin and death? It's the law that says literally sin equals death. It's the dominion or the reign of sin in the life of person of the person who has committed sin. It is a powerful thing. And that power is broken through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we have justification and we have propitiation and we have reconciliation and we have redemption. But don't leave Romans 3.24 because there's another word in this verse that summarizes all of these others and makes them possible. Being justified freely by his grace. Your word is grace. And grace literally refers to unearned or unmerited favor. When we talk about grace and being justified freely by his grace, we're talking about God giving us that which we do not deserve. In Romans 5 and verse 15, Paul says, notice how he describes grace. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by grace of the, of, uh, the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Notice it's described as being free. And in verse 17, he says, if for by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 15, grace and justification and being made right is described as being free. And in verse 17, it's described as a gift. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about that which is free, that which is given, unearned or undeserved or unmerited favor. 
But then notice that Romans tells us that there is an appropriate response to grace. Romans 4.14, for example, in talking about the example of Abraham. In the end of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul will talk about how we are saved or justified by faith. But then the question becomes, what kind of faith? And the answer is given in chapter 4. And the answer is, we're saved by the same kind of faith that Abraham had. It's an obedient faith, a faith that uh, hears what God says and accepts what God says and obeys what God says. Always, when the Bible talks about an acceptable faith, a biblical faith, it includes those three items. It hears what God says, accepts what God says, and and obeys it. But in Romans 4, verse 4, he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. He's talking about the fact that Abraham could not be made right before God by earning it, like the employer-employee relationship. An employer goes to work for a person, and the agreement is that the, at the end of every 40-hour week, the employee is owed a, a salary, say, of $1,000. So the employee meets the end of a 40-hour week, and the employer is indebted to that employee to pay them the money that he owes him. Paul says, listen, if we earn our right standing before God, if Abraham did that, then it's not of grace, it's of debt. It's saying that God owed justification to Abraham, but that's silly. No one would ever say that. But uh, he goes on in verse 16 of this same chapter, and he says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And we don't have the time to look at it, but in this chapter, Paul will go into more detail to define what he means by the faith of Abraham and how Abraham becomes the father of us all. But basically, the idea is that my faith must look like his. And again, his faith was one that heard and that accepted and that obeyed. And whenever we're willing to hear and accept and obey, then we can be justified by faith because of the grace of God, just as Abraham was. But as we draw it to a close, I want you to look at Romans chapter 5, and I want you to look at what Paul says in verse 1 and verse 2. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice that Romans 3.24 tells us that we're justified by grace, We have a response to grace in Romans chapter 4, and now in Romans 5 he says we stand in grace. And the emphasis, the grammar in this passage is something like this. We stand having gained access into this grace. In other words, it's a completed action with continuing or ongoing results. So what is it that he's talking about when he says that we stand having gained access into grace? He's pointing back to verse number one. It's a state of justification and peace with God. And Paul says that whenever we can say that we stand in a state of justification, whenever we can say that we have peace with God, that that is a result of the grace of God, and that we can say, I stand in his grace in an ongoing manner. It's a continual action, if you will, or continuing results. So that takes us back again to where we began. The law of sin and death 
We have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Sin results in death, and so that ought to increase our horror and our dread and our hatred of sin. But there is life in Christ Jesus. God's not left us without recourse. He's not left us without the ability to deal with sin. He does it through things like justification and propitiation and reconciliation and redemption and all because of his grace. We can say that we are set free and that we stand in the grace of God and that we have hope and we rejoice in that hope and that we are walking or living our lives in accordance with the instruction and teaching of the Spirit. And that gives us reason to rejoice. So as we study these things and meditate on them again, the goal is that our hatred of sin must increase, yes, but also our appreciation for salvation and for the grace of God, the love of God, that makes it possible for us to escape sin and death. That appreciation ought to increase as well. Tonight, the Lord's invitation is offered. Maybe tonight you have a need to respond, maybe to become a child of God. The Bible says that when a person hears the word of God and they're willing to repent of their sins and confess their faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins, that God will add them to the body of Jesus Christ. Maybe tonight you're a Christian and as you think about your life, you've allowed sin to creep in and you need to make that right. We'd love to help you. Can we pray with you? Can we assist you in some way? If you have a need, come forward and let it be known while we stand and sing together.